This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them to succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, Matt and I will be talking with Ryan Kirsting, an Associate Principal Structural Engineer at Bueller. We'll dive into NCSEA, explore its essence and ways for engineers to engage in this organization. Ryan will talk about functional recovery and structural engineering and explain how engineers can deepen their understanding and contribute to improving community resilience. I'm your co-host, Rachel Holland. And I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. Now let's jump into our conversation of the week. Before we dive in, we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. Now let's dive into today's episode. Hey, Ryan. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, could you tell us about your role at Bueller and your involvement in the professional organizations such as NCSEA president? And uh, I know you're a part of the Functional Recovery Task Committee as well. First of all, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here today. I have a lot of interesting things I'd like to share with you and your audience, and hopefully we can tease out a little bit of excitement through the process. So I am a principal at Bueller in our Sacramento office. I've been here at Bueller for 27 years after graduating from Cal Poly Slow with a civil engineering degree and then also getting my master's from UC Davis. I love being a structural engineer, and I really love that Bueller has found a way to embrace different career paths within our structural engineering profession. So after years of designing projects, managing projects, supervising people and teams, my current role has transitioned into one of a technical expert. So I've now had the opportunity to support many, many projects in a technical role. And Bueller has also supported my involvement in various technical activities throughout the profession in our industry, through the Applied Technology Council, through the Structural Engineers Association of California, through NCSEA, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well, through ASCE7, Seismic Committee, and as you mentioned, now even being chair of the Function Recovery Task Committee, where we're working on some really cool, exciting new provisions to think about how we can get our buildings to recover more quickly instead of just providing minimum safety. So at Bueller, I get to try to bring all of that stuff back to us on our projects, back to us in terms of how we're going to design projects, how we're going to serve our clients, how we're going to inform owners of what the work we're doing, but also how we set up our design standards and empower our teams to be successful in terms of our consulting, but also in terms of various roles we have out in the industry as well. 
Just a quick question about the functional recovery task committee. Is that, I feel like I've been hearing like buzzword and like the performance of the building versus like, you know, life safety. Is that essentially like same idea, just different verbiage? To some degree, yes. We have started to coin it recovery-based design instead of safety-based design. So I think for the most part, our building codes are safety-based. We all understand that risk category four, those emergency facilities, those essential facilities have a little bit higher performance as well. But we're being more deliberate by considering recovery-based design. And so functional recovery is the concept of, let's find a way to design our buildings to meet the recovery goals of our communities in terms of the time it will take to get back into the buildings instead of just maintaining the basic safety. What about for like our listeners that maybe are not so familiar with all of the different structural engineering professional organizations, can you talk a little bit about what NC? SEA is? And then also like sort of what its vision, mission, like everything that it's sort of trying to pursue. Let's start with the basics. NCSEA, National Council of Structural Engineers Associations. We have 44 member organizations. Our member organizations are the structural engineers associations at the state level, for example, SEOC here in California. But we also have over 10,000 members of practicing structural engineers from around the country. So we combined our efforts with the local efforts of the local SCAs, the 44 member organizations, to support practicing structural engineers. The vision of NCSEA, if you want to get into the details of it, are that structural engineers are valued for the contributions we make to safe structures and resilient communities. So again, thinking beyond just the safety side of things and contributing to resilient communities. And the mission is to do this in partnership with our member organizations. So we're going to support practicing structural engineers to be highly qualified professionals and successful leaders. So if you were to ask me to boil that down into my own words, we're trying to be that national organization that represents and advocates for practicing structural engineers. We are good partners with CASE, as well as SEI, other organizations at the national level supporting the structural engineering profession. And our focus in particular is on the practicing structural engineers, supporting them, supporting the local SEAs to reach our full potential as individuals and as an organization. You mentioned the 44 SEA organizations. So are there some states out there that don't have those? Are they like more heavily involved in this then? Because that's sort of the only organization they have. Yes, there's definitely a little Jekyll and Hyde that NCSEA plays because for, I'll say, those states that have had an SEA for a long time, California, Washington, New York, Illinois, Florida, we support them, but they have a very well-functioning team already, and they have great programs. But some of those smaller states that either have a newer SCA or don't have an SCA, NCSEA to some degree serves as their SCA. And so many people from some of those smaller states feel connected at the national level because they engage in the committees within NCSEA. They attend the NCSEA Summit as their annual conference, whereas some of the other SEAs have their own conference, their own committees, and what have you. So yet we play both roles. We do have to kind of serve the bigger SEAs that have programs that are sophisticated and, and mature, and we also want to make sure that we're providing support and those programs for the SEAs that are a little bit younger and are seeking something to, why duplicate something if we can do that in partnership with them? You pretty much had a unique career path from what you were telling me. It was, you switched to a technical role, but... I think what's interesting is that you have such a big part in the professional organizations as well. Is that, could you go through some of your career paths and how it seems like your firm worked with you to help you say a bigger part in these organizations and therefore help your company out by bringing that knowledge in? 
Could you share more about that? Because I feel a lot of structural engineers say they don't have time or to do organizations or the firm won't support them. Can you talk more about that in your career path? And this is a story I like to share, but I do consider myself extremely lucky. I don't know how many people get this opportunity. And so I've been thankful for the support that Bueller has given me to choose or to identify a technical career path. Bueller also looks at project management career paths, at business development career paths. We definitely have an opportunity there to identify where your strengths align and, and how we can support you to be the best individual and in turn, make our company and, and our profession in turn the best it can be. So I've been extremely lucky to have this opportunity from Bueller, but about 10 years into my career, it was a strategic conversation that we had with the president of Bueller at the time that said, we really need someone to be this technical lead, a technical expert. And so we developed a strategy to engage me in different organizations like SEOC, like ATC, like NCSCA, like ASCE, and go to these technical committees and work with these organizations to understand the work and the latest research and the best practices, and then bring them back to Bueller. About the same time, that was probably eight to 10 years into my career. And so I started down that path. And then about 15 years into my career, we actually did a little bit of detour. Rachel's heard this story before. Some other people have heard this story before. Did a little detour where Bueller supported me actually transitioning to a part-time job in order to maintain some of that engagement in the industry work because it was hard to be able to serve clients while also staying very focused on the industry work but also to spend time with the family too. Uh, our kids were young at the time and we were both working full-time and we said, you know, we do need to balance this out a little bit. So there is a lot of time that goes into it, whether you're doing projects or business development or the industry work and with the professional organizations. And Bueller was kind enough to give me a part-time opportunity to maintain a lot of that engagement, but also keep it in balance with the family obligations and opportunities. So it's definitely been unique. After eight years of doing the part-time thing, I'm back full-time at Bueller, and I'm really thankful to be back working full-time and bringing a lot of this experience that I've gained on the sides back to the full company. And through this journey, I really do feel like it's enlightened me. It's exposed a lot of the profession that I don't know I would have understood existed. There's so much more than just the project work. You know, There's so much more than just the calculations and the details. And some people are really good at making connections with clients and with owners and contractors and explaining and, and being that visible structural engineer to explain the value. And then there's so much behind the scenes on the professional side through the organizations. And I've been happy and lucky to be engaged in that. But it really has, I guess you could say, lit this kind of passion for involving myself more and more with codes and standards being able to support and understand the latest research that's happening, and then also working on some of the public policy side of things too, to be able to share our knowledge and our expertise with elected officials, with the general public, to make sure that they understand what structural engineers do and how we can help them make good decisions about what they're doing for building codes or what they're doing for public policies in their local communities. One thing I've mentioned this to you in the past, Ryan, is I love that you went part-time for a period of time. I think that in our profession, that's not uh, widely accepted. And I feel like everybody has different reasons for different things happening in their lives. But I just feel like it's something that I would like to see it be more widely accepted and sort of, you know, not be the exception, I guess, if you will. So I think that's really cool that you did that. And I think it the fact that you're out there talking about it when you talk about your career path and things like that, I think it just spreads awareness that it's 
it's something that's possible in our field and you can still succeed and you can still grow in your career and you can still have an impact and change things and do all the great things that we can do. That was really cool. Just because I think like what you were mentioning, Rachel, yeah, there with the firms, this relates to recruitment and retention too, is whatever firm you're working for, whatever company you're working for, can you see yourself working there throughout all of the phases of your life? Everyone's different. If there's no flexibility in that, it's kind of with the work-life balance. And if your firm is able to support that, great. I think that's what engineers are going to be looking for when they're looking for what type of work that they want to do. Can this firm support me throughout all the phases of my life? Because everyone's this is going to be different. So that's uh, really cool to see. If I can add in a little bit, I think there's it's dynamic, right? As you said, each stage is going to be different and you're going to be able to offer a different level of experience to your clients. You're going to be able to offer a different level of balance to your company. I was just talking to a friend the other day and we've heard this in a few different cases. You know, I would love to find a way to be able to embrace different models in this. My model's not the same for, not going to work for everybody either, you know, but is there a way that if someone wanted to take a sabbatical every five years or something, could you take three months off just to be able to reset or something? You know, we, we all realize how much as a structural engineer we give to our projects, we give to our clients. We are in a service business in many ways, and we give a lot of our heart and soul to these projects. And I think it does take a little bit of a time to be able to hit the reset button. And I would like to find ways to continue to support that. Again, whether your career path is the project management career path, project design, technical aspects, business development aspects, I think there's a way that we can accommodate a little bit more of that throughout the profession in general. A hundred percent. And I think that's like what you're saying, Matt, is like when you're out there shopping, if you will, for your career, right? Like, finding a firm that just is open to those conversations or you can feel like the flexibility that they would be willing to like entertain, you know, obviously has to work for both people and all the different things, but even just being willing to have that conversation, right. Versus having it just be a no in terms of retention and recruitment and all of those things. I think as we move forward, that's going to be a really appealing aspect of different firms. It does take a commitment, I would say. It takes a commitment on both sides, like you were kind of hinting at there, Rachel, because i be very honest, when I was part-time, there were a lot of people that took projects off my plate or took the work that I wasn't able to do, but I found a way to be able to commit to being valuable in the opportunities I was able to still provide value for my company and to my staff, my colleagues, and be able to say, here, I will be available off hours if needed. I will keep you moving forward when you need it. And so I think there is that partnership there. And that's where I think we've been very lucky here at Bueller to be able to have those conversations and be able to say, what can we do to support each other? You know, how can we find a way to make this work for everybody? You touched a little bit on some of the things that NCSEA is like focusing on. And I was wondering if you could maybe shed a little bit more light on future goals and what they're trying to do. There's a lot that we have going on on a regular basis. We just had a great summit. Our 2023 NCSEA summit was the best attended, had the best vendor and exhibitor participation, had the best attendee participation, celebrated some amazing people and some amazing projects with awards, had great technical sessions, had the, the fantastic SE3 symposium, and it was in Disneyland of all places. So you can't get much better than that, right? But we have some really well develop long-standing programs at NCSA that I'll hit just a couple real quick. And then I'll you know, also pause and talk about a few more that are coming up in the future that we're really excited about too. 
before I get there, just a quick plug. NCSEA 2024 Summit, first week in November in Las Vegas. So if Disneyland's not your place, come to Vegas. I think we have something for everyone in Vegas, as they say. But some of the things that we've been doing more kind of on the cutting edge or, or the more recent past, the We See Above and Beyond campaign, and I don't know how much people see that in their own social media feeds or what have you, but we've been intentional about developing a program to build a strong and visible brand that will elevate the image of the structural engineering profession and increase the awareness of our profession and what we do. We've been doing a lot of digital campaigns and digital media and through social media, we've been targeting the AEC industry to help make sure that people understand what structural engineers do and how we see above and beyond. It's more again than just the project, uh, the calculations and the details. It's a lot of thought that goes into this and providing value to the end users, to the public and the owners of these structures. We had a great reveal series about a year ago. We have a spotlight on iconic structures that's still rolling out there. We're about to launch what we're calling the UC We See campaign, which is going to have a series of videos from individual structural engineers walking around buildings or projects of theirs that they will then explain the really cool features to them to hopefully bring some awareness of what's behind all the finishes. And, and maybe it's during a construction walk and helping to explain the steel structure that's going to end up getting covered up and, and never seen again, but really trying to bring that awareness and trying to relate to people on a new level through the We See Above and Beyond campaign. There is a website for that because there's a lot of great videos on there. There's other resources. So we'd love people to share it with their family, with their friends, with their clients, just to help bring more awareness to what we're doing as structural engineers. I was here at the NCSEA summit. Uh, that was a good experience just because there, it's not just, I don't know, for the engineers that haven't gone to one or haven't attended. There's really cool technical sessions that I really enjoyed, but there's also the soft skills. I know the diversity and inclusion, the SE3, and even some of the mental health challenges and career challenges that we all go through as structural engineers. And you can really find a, a good community. You're not the only one going through all the challenges. We're going through it as a profession and celebrating the awards too of our profession too. So I think it's a really good summit to go to. And yeah, Vegas sounds fun. And yeah, the We See Above and Beyond campaign, I've seen that too. And I think that's it's great because I know engineers, we don't really like to get the spotlight, but I think our problem is not giving us ourselves enough credit. So we can just show off our stuff. Yeah, we can provide more value to our clients and the public and get more people into the industry as well. Is the We See campaign, is, when I see it, it's the capital S-E-E. Is that an acronym? Yeah. So C is all capitalized. That's for structural engineering excellence. And so we are trying to feature structural engineering excellence. And yes, it's a nice little play on words, the We See campaign. But that is, and so we've rebranded our annual awards program to be the CE Awards to try to bring in this consistency of the brand a little bit, but also to recognize that that's what we're here for. We're here to promote the structural engineering excellence. We're here to promote the individuals, the firms doing great work. And we want to make sure, like you said, Matt, we're too humble. You know, we don't really like the spotlight. And so we're trying to find that way to let people have something that they can go show off and say, I'm a structural engineer. This is what I do go check this out. There's a lot more behind the scenes that you don't see, but we do see. You mentioned a lot of the non-technical things that we cover at the summit. You can think back to the summit, maybe even five years ago, certainly 10 years ago. NCSEA, by the way, is now turning 30 years old. So we've been doing this for quite a while at the national level. But like you said, even five years ago, some of that softer stuff wasn't part of our 
programs. And it's really been a great evolution of the content that we have for continuing education to be able to build that community and build that whole side of us, not just the technical side, but the rest of the human side of it as well. And that's something that NCSEA through the SE3 committee and through now the NCSEA foundation doing our diversity and structural engineering scholarship program, we're really trying to focus on the whole person, the whole engineer, not just the technical aspects of our profession. And were there any other NCSEA planning or projects that you want to talk about? Yeah, I want to hit a couple because they're cool to me. I'm excited about them, which I think is something that we're filling a gap that isn't there right now uh, being served by our profession. One of them is media spokesperson training. It sounds a little bit a small thing, but I think we've all noticed, you know, certainly after the service side building collapse, but also after major earthquakes or major hurricanes, the media goes out and looks for information. And so NCSEA is dedicating some resources and time to build a spokesperson bureau that has expertise on a lot of different subject matter and also then has the skills in terms of training to be able to conduct media interviews and be reactionary when we need to, but also develop this into a program that's a little bit more proactive and builds relationships with different media platforms so that they know to come to us as a source of trusted information, as a source of you know that knowledge and that expertise. Here in California, there's nothing worse than having someone else other than an engineer talk about building performance. And so we want to make sure that we're providing through our SEAs, a support system that allows them to say, hey, we got a request for an interview, but we don't have anybody. Well, NCSA will now have somebody that can handle that interview, be a practicing structural engineer, explain it from an engineer's perspective, but ideally in words that will make sense to you know the general public as well. So that's something we're really excited about. We're really also excited about the work we're doing at, with the NCSA Foundation. I mentioned the Diversity and Structural Engineering Scholarship Program, but we're also starting a new grant program for innovation in structural engineering. And so we're launching a new grant to build an AI team that's going to look in, be our steering committee to look into AI and understand how we're going to embrace AI as a structural engineering profession and helpfully guide us through this transition into that next step of technology. So that's something we're really excited about coming up in the near future soon, too. So is the way that it's organized within NCSEAs, are these like just different committees? And then like, how would it work for like the media one that you talked about? Like, is that like a certain committee? And if you're on the committee, then you've been trained and you could be the person that's interviewed. How does that work? We have a bunch of committees. We have about a dozen different committees on different technical and non-technical topics. In the case of the media spokesperson, we sent an email out to everybody on our membership list and said, if you're interested in helping us develop a media spokesperson bureau, let us know and send in your experience, send in your qualifications. So we did that announcement. We had over, it was almost 150 people express interest in it. We knew that we only had a limited amount of time to get this first training done. So we started that with a group of about 12 to 15 people. And we're looking to expand that as we get kind of our feet under ourselves here a little bit to be able to make sure that we're getting good geographic diversity, good subject matter expertise. The last thing we want is someone from California explaining something that happened back East, right? We want to be able to have some sort of credibility when it comes to this as well. It was uh, the topic of resilience and functional recovery, because not all engineers are in the West Coast. Could you give a little intro on that and uh, what your involvement is in that new committee? This is now switching a little bit from my NCSEA hat to a few different hats. So I'll start with some of the basics. So functional recovery right now has been a focus on post-earthquake performance. 
this has come through the reauthorization of the National Earthquake Hazards Reduction Program. So at the federal level, Congress charges the NEHRP agencies, which are FEMA, NIST, the National Science Foundation, and USGS, they charge them with running the National Earthquake Hazards Reduction Program and advancing the science and the engineering to keep our country safer, if not also more resilient. And in 2018, the charge that came from Congress was to specifically consider community resilience in how we go about designing buildings and designing critical infrastructure. So that's where it started, came from. And the idea of functional recovery is like we talked about a little bit earlier, our building codes do a great job right now for new buildings designed to, to modern codes of keeping us safe. But much like crumple zones absorb energies in car accidents for earthquakes, we have ductility. And we know that the ductility and the damage that's associated with that keeps our building safe by absorbing the energy of the earthquakes. But that damage will take some time to repair and recover from. So we now have new tools for earthquakes to understand the performance, not just in terms of the safety that we're getting from our building codes, but also the performance in terms of expected damage, uh, how much time it's going to take to repair that damage, the probability of whether you might get a yellow tag or red tag that might prevent you from getting back in your building. And so we're trying to bring this new science into play to say, how do we go about designing our buildings to recover when our communities need them to be ready to be reoccupied or returned to some degree of function? So functional recovery as a definition is just the attempt to make our buildings recover their basic intended functions, not full recovery, not every last crack repaired, but basic intended functions in a time that's reasonable for our communities to return to, to service and be more resilient in terms of the community scale. And so we're looking at developing provisions, design provisions, much like we do for earthquakes right now, uh, still use prescriptive design provisions, still use many of the same names and letters of what we're used to doing, but maybe changing some of the numbers to provide this extra enhanced level performance in order to minimize the damage for certain buildings that need to recover quickly so they can recover quickly. And for other buildings that maybe can allow a longer recovery time, then allow that longer recovery time to happen. So it's not a one size fits all. It's very much customized to when a particular building based on its service it's providing would be recovered. Yes, this has been earthquake related so far because the earthquake science has these performance-based design metrics and methodologies that we can use, but we're always keeping an eye on this being multi-hazard eventually. We understand that floods, hurricanes, windstorms, those are certainly more damaging across the country than maybe the earthquakes here in California, but we recognize that we have the science for the earthquakes now. So we're looking to advance that science in the multi-hazards as a future step. I have a follow-up to that, all of the functional recovery. It's interesting because, you know, oftentimes when I'm out in my job, right, talking to contractors and different people that are trying to learn how to build code compliant structures, when I mentioned to them that like, you know, the code is a, it's a life safety, like it's to keep people safe, right? But the way it's written currently, it really doesn't address like everything you're talking about, right? Like getting back in the building, are you going to, is it even going to be usable afterwards? I mean, like the intent of the code is to save lives, which is obviously very important. But like when you explain that to people that are not well-versed in the code, I think like something sort of registers with them because oftentimes people, oh, you know, we shouldn't have to do it this way, you know, like different kind of mentalities. But yeah, when we kind of explain to them that this is like a minimum sort of standard, you think about where we're headed and I was a kid down in near Northridge, like when that earthquake happened, I mean, I had so many friends get displaced, their houses, they had to move, like 
it's a big deal, you know, and uh, that was a suburb. But I mean, you think about it in terms of a city and like just dense populated areas. And I'm excited that we're headed in this direction. And a lot of this, at least the conversation in California that I've been more a part of with SIOC came from a number of conversations that Dr. Lucy Jones was having with different policymakers, both within the Southern California local jurisdictions, but also here at the state capitol in Sacramento. And much the same thing, Rachel, of trying to explain to people like this is basic safety. Yes, we do a better job for hospitals and fire stations. We want to make sure we're acknowledging that. But for everything else, it's basic safety. And we now have the data that suggests that a certain significant portion of buildings will be unfit for reoccupancy right after an earthquake or will take a long time <laughs> to get back, if not be unrepairable. Yes, it's keeping them safe, but what's that cost in terms of the livelihoods, you know, the displacement costs, the stress involved, but also just the actual financial costs of having to do this repair. The great news about it is that we're developing techniques that we think are very nominal in terms of any increase in construction cost. When it comes to the actual change in construction costs, we've had case studies done for schools, for even multifamily homes that suggests this is a nominal increase in cost, if much at all, on the order of one to two to 3%. So if you think about that and the long-term benefit of, it reduces actually the total cost of ownership in the long-term. So we're hopeful about this. We've been doing a lot of work with SEOC at the state capitol, trying to advocate with our elected officials to bring them this awareness so that they're aware of it and they can then advocate to the governor and some other different state agencies to start to say, we could be doing this sooner. We're going to have the development of these recommended provisions at the national level, but we could start to be thinking about that here in California or some higher seismic Western U.S. states about how to start to embrace this earlier to seek that performance that our communities need relative to our local hazards. Could you tell us more about that, the California public policy and getting that legislation across? What are some of the challenges and what are the things that you're doing because yeah, we can do it in theory, but if it doesn't get into the code and it's not backed by the government, it's not going to be much. Could you talk more about that? And this is the part where it's been kind of one of those eye-opening experiences of being able to do more than just the project work. And being here in Sacramento gives me a chance to be at the state capitol and to go meet with elected officials in our assembly and our Senate here, as well as members of the executive team, the executive department. And just to be able to explain to them what we're getting out of the building codes really has been eye-opening to them. They don't understand what we do. They still think of things as earthquake proof. Admittedly, politics is different than technical committees. Technical committees are very much consensus-based. Politics is politics. And as they say, you don't want to necessarily know how the sausage gets made sometimes because there are certain interests that take advantage or take priorities, whether we think it is the most logical or not is something to still be debated. So. We're still working on our best path forward to help the elected officials understand for our communities to be resilient here in California, they need to be thinking about earthquakes in addition to all the work and the thought that's being put into wildfires and floods and the other hazards that are threatening our communities. But we think we're making inroads. We're thinking that our Seismic Safety Commission has been thinking about this. We think that our Building Standards Commission is aware of this. We just need to make it a little bit more formal, like you said, Matt. If we're really going to have impact on the scale that we need, we need to have a way to embrace it as a the new minimum here in California. And then we can think about other areas of the country that might want to do it, whether it's a voluntary basis or when a threshold gets exceeded, then a certain uh, local region outside of California might say, hey, we have this same similar hazard that California has. We should be considering this as well. 
going through engineering school and being a practicing engineer, going to the Capitol and talking to politicians about what we do just seems very foreign to me. What are you doing? Like, is it a whole group? Is it the whole committee from NCSEA goes and like presents what we found? Or like, I don't just don't understand how that works. There's a few different ways we've done this. We've done this uh, in California through SEAC. We've done it as like a legislative visit day where we, we might have a team of five to 10 different individuals. And most of the time we end up going having one-on-one conversations or a few of us at a time. And so it does take a lot of upfront work on behalf of our organization to be able to say, okay, here are our talking points. Here are the people we're going to meet. We're going to schedule all these meetings and then take advantage of that because you do want to make sure that your people are prepared. It's not something that most engineers are ready to do just in an instant. And so we've really enjoyed an opportunity to bring a few people along and say, come watch us do it and kind of learn from us as we do it. Because I think it is a learned skill. It's not necessarily a natural skill to most engineers. Now, I'll acknowledge my dad is a retired pastor. My mom is a retired nurse. So I think I have a lot more of the human side of things and communication maybe is a little bit different for me than it is for the average engineer, but I've really enjoyed it. It's been invigorating. And I think the people that have come along with us to engage in these conversations come out of them feeling invigorated too. And they sense that there's an opportunity here. You don't always get to meet with the actual elected official, the member of the Senate or the assembly here in California. You often have to meet with a member of staff first and then kind of build these relationships. But we've proven that we've been valuable post wildfire. We've gone and been able to explain how some of our post earthquake tagging programs can work for post wildfire tagging as well. We've proven that our expertise is valuable. We've proven to them that we're trusted for being fairly neutral and just providing the facts. And so that's really been a great relationship opportunity to build these relationships. And it has been, it energizes people in a different way than I think the projects do. I think it is, it's beyond the numbers. It's a little bit more of the softer skills, but being able to still contribute to making our communities a better place through public policy and and maybe legislative activities, not just codes and standards or design work. Is there anything else that we didn't hit on that you wanted to chat about or share with the guests or anything like that? I want to at least bring attention to the publication that we worked on after that NEHRP reauthorization. Congress charged FEMA and NIST to develop a committee of experts, and that committee of experts was charged with developing recommendations for how to improve the post-earthquake reoccupancy and recovery time. And so FEMA and NIST developed a report to Congress. I was chair of a committee of about 25 people, and that report to Congress came up with seven recommendations for how to approach this, essentially this recovery-based design concept as an enhancement to our current safety-based design. So that FEMA NIST report is something that I think is super informational for how to get our arms around the problem of post-earthquake recovery. And it thinks not just about the technical side, about how we design and build our infrastructure, but it also thinks about the public side of things and how do we plan better? How do our homes and our schools and our businesses be more prepared to reoccupy a building if it's ready for them to get back in? What sort of financial resources are necessary? What sort of you know, post-earthquake inspection programs could be improved? And what sort of public education campaign can we do? So that feminist report is something that I think is really informational. If, if people want to learn more about functional recovery and kind of where we're going, that's certainly one step. And then in terms of this functional recovery task committee, which is a new thing working on the actual code provisions, we have a planning committee report that outlines where we're going with that. And I think that's another great resource for people to be aware of if they'd like to learn more about this, because it, it's going to take all of us to be able to understand our role to think more than just safety. And I'd love to have people understanding this better 
and that's a great way to get started. Yeah, we can definitely like um, put a link in that so people can learn more. I can send links to you as well. I know I, for better or for worse, if you're doing any sort of B-roll sort of graphics and stuff, I did send like graphics of the covers of each of those documents so the team can think about rolling some of that out. Okay, one final question that we like to ask our guests then, Ryan, and I think you've been asked this before, so this will not be like new information. What is your final piece of advice that you would want to share with like a younger engineer recent to the career? We didn't mention it earlier, but your daughter is also studying to be structural engineer. So what do you tell her at the dinner table? You know, what's your advice for the newer engineers? My advice is to become as well-rounded as you can. As we've talked about today and as your podcasts have, have highlighted, there's more than one way to be a structural engineer. There's plenty of opportunities for different career paths. But to be the most flexible in those career paths means you ought to have the best skill set you can. And so being well-rounded. You've heard me talk about some of the public policy things, some of the advocacy things, some of the marketing things. You don't necessarily get that through your technical classes. You have to kind of come by that some other way. And so I would encourage them to seek those opportunities to get engaged in something that stretches them beyond their comfort zone and be willing to try something new, especially we really need more and more people to be public advocates for our profession, whether it's helping people just understand what structural engineers do or actually meeting with people and trying to help them understand how we could develop better policies, regulations, codes, and standards. It's not all technical. There's a lot of soft skills involved there, and there's a lot of relationship building and connections with people, I think, is really, really engaging and is really super rewarding as well. And it brings a whole different dimension to our profession that I don't think as many people are as involved as they could be. So that'd be my plug. I hope more people join me. Yes, I'm probably a bit of a unicorn here. I'll give you that. And takes the right set of circumstances. But it really is something we could use a lot more people. That tends to be kind of a, a common theme of people that we do have on this show is like a big push for soft skills because I don't think it's something that was really emphasized in the past. And so that's great advice. I try to remind people to connect on a personal level. Because it's going to make your entire career much more rewarding if you can connect on the personal level. We have that tremendous opportunity, and but also tremendous responsibility to design really amazing structures and take that responsibility to keep our people and our community safe. But we could take that to a whole new level by thinking about recovery, not just safety. And we can think about how we can support our communities to be resilient. And I think that's going to engage the next generation of our engineers in a new way that's really exciting for me. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights and your expertise with us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Matt. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit structuralengineeringchannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? 
How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.